Well, good morning. This, uh, this sermon comes with a warning today. Just like uh, video games and music and movies that are labored for mature audiences only, this sermon comes with a warning, warning for spiritually maturing audiences only. And that's the point the writer of Hebrews has been making in the last part of chapter 5 and all the way through chapter 6. If you're making progress with God, if you're growing in your relationship with the Lord, if you're listening, God bless you. And if you're not, God bless you. Uh, Please turn to Hebrews chapter 7 and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to read Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. This is God's word for us this morning. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without dispute, the lesser is being blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Lord, we pray that you would open your word up to us today. Open our eyes, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Look, we all know life is full of a lot of things we don't understand. Mysterious things. Like male-female relationships. Roy Orbison spoke for all men in his 1989 album, Mystery Girl, when he sang, She's a Mystery to Me. Then there's those everyday mysteries. You know, where's the car keys? What are hot dogs made from? Why do we always realize there's no toilet paper after we sit down? There's mysteries all over the place, be it quantum physics or marriage. We are puzzled by many things. Now, spiritually speaking, we deal with questions like, where did God come from? Why does evil exist? How did he make the world? Some things are O-G-K. Only God knows. He knows the answer. We don't know the answer. This is the good thing about mysteries, by the way. We don't know the answers. God does. God does. And many mysteries have clues, clues leading to answers that a little digging can uncover. And Melchizedek is like that. Melchizedek. 
I got to give you one more warning. Don't think that Melchizedek has no bearing on life. Don't think that it's not a practical application here somewhere for where we live. There are often very practical benefits to unlocking mysteries. For example, when you find your lost keys, you can then drive your car and open up your house and your office. Unlocking the mystery of Melchizedek, I may just call him M throughout this message. It's a long name. But it has some very practical, Christ-centered implications for our lives, for our families. So what do we need to know about M? What difference does Melchizedek make to us? I want us to focus our attention first on his significance. Melchizedek's significance. And it's seen with regard to his name and his titles and his identity. First, I want to give you a little background on Melchizedek. He is what is called a type of Christ. Uh, A type refers to an Old Testament person or or practice or thing that has a counterpart in the New Testament. Types are temporary. They predict something to come. And so Melchizedek is a type of Christ, illustrating Christ, prefiguring Christ, foreshadowing him. He's mentioned only three times in all of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 14, in Psalm 110, just one verse, verse 4, and then throughout Hebrews chapters 5 through 7. In in fact, go to Genesis 14. I just want you to see what what the situation was here. Genesis 14. Now it was written... It was written around 2000 B.C. And the context was this war of the kings. Five kings against four. They had rebelled against this king that had taken them captive. And in the midst of the battle of the kings, Abraham's nephew Lot was taken. He and his possessions. And he was... Um, he was there and someone came and told Abram what had happened. And what happened was Abraham, Abram went and rescued his nephew Lot after the battle of the kings, after he had been captured by these five kings. The, these kings had ca- captured Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was living in Sodom. What was he thinking? Whatever the case, he gets captured. And God gave Abraham a very great victory. He recovered Lot and all his goods. And, and when Abraham was coming back, Melchizedek went out to meet him. It's where we meet Melchizedek. And in verse, in verse 18, uh, excuse me, 17 of Genesis 14, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then we read he gave him a tenth of all. That's it. 
That's all there is in Genesis about Melchizedek. Done. All right? Now, there's a big, big gap between appearances of Melchizedek in Scripture. So uh, about a thousand years later, Melchizedek resurfaces again. This time in Psalm 110. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. David speaks of him and speaks of Jesus. Speaks of Jesus and says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. A thousand years after the guy comes in on a cameo appearance, here he is again. And then, in the first century, in Hebrews, starting in chapter 5, but now we see in chapter 7, Melchizedek appears. We know more about Melchizedek from Hebrews chapter 5, 6, and 7 than we do anywhere else in Scripture. It's an awesome illustration, example of the, the inspiration of Scripture. That God reveals more in the New Testament than he did about a shadowy figure in the Old Testament that had a lot of meaning, but was, was hidden for a long time and now revealed. So with the mention of this priestly order of Melchizedek in chapter 7, the author of Hebrews is coming back to a discussion that he started back in chapter 5, but he, he broke, broke off from for a moment to address some issues. They were sluggish of hearing. They were dull of hearing. They weren't listening And now he is resuming his main discussion, what he started in chapter 5. And really, Hebrews 7 is the focal point of the book of Hebrews. A focal point. It's not just a little sidelight here. There's something here for us. Melchizedek's significance is seen in his name. In his name. Look at uh, Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, We see his name here, and then it says that his name means something. In verse 2, it says, first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Now, in the first two verses, four times he is called a king. Uh, Melchizedek, in Hebrew, Melech is king, Zedek is righteousness, and names meant a lot. That was who you were. And the name Melchizedek points to Jesus. One of Christ's titles is the Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Jesus is the true king of righteousness. Now Melchizedek was a king who ruled righteously. Jesus is the righteous one. He is righteousness incarnate. 1 John 2, 1, he is called Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is intrinsically righteous. All, everything about him is righteous. He is the sum of all righteousness. He is the source of all righteousness. He is the giver and mediator of righteousness. In Romans, in chapter 3, in verse 21. We read these words, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. See, in giving his righteousness, um, in those he brings to faith in himself, he gives his own perfect righteousness. Not our human idea of righteousness that the scriptures tell us is like filthy rags. He gives us perfect righteousness. And in giving it, he becomes our personal Melchizedekian high priest. I may say that one more time today, if I can. I'm just glad I was able to say that. Melchizedekian high priest who prays for the working out of his practical righteousness in our lives. Even this very moment. Even as we are sitting here right this moment. His name, King of Righteousness. Also, his significance is seen in his, his titles. In, in verse, verses 1 and 2, verse 1, he is called the King of Salem. King of Salem. And verse 2 tells us what that means. It means King of Peace. Salem was an ancient name for Jerusalem, which is the equivalent to Mount Zion. The psalmist said in Psalm 76, 2, in Salem also is God's tabernacle. His dwelling place is in Zion. He was uh, the king of Salem, king of peace. He was also priest of the most high God. Interesting title. It's a pagan title for God. Priest of the most high God. A pagan title. A very accurate pagan title for God Almighty. A strong name for God. Melchizedek lived in a pagan time, but he was one who worshipped the one true God, and people knew it. Melchizedek typified the, the royalty, the royalty of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus. Jesus is the king of peace. Jesus is the true king of peace. His peace follows his gift of righteousness. Interestingly, biblically speaking, it never comes before it. Peace flows out of righteousness. He is peace. He himself is our peace. He is called the prince of peace in Isaiah 9, 6. He is the essence and sum and the source of all peace that exists. There is no peace without Jesus. You know that bumper sticker that some of you may have on your car? Uh, no, Jesus, K-N-O-W, Jesus, K-N-O-W, peace. But no, Jesus, N-O, Jesus, N-O, peace. You can't know peace apart from Jesus. He is the giver and the mediator of peace. He came to the earth and the angel said, Peace to men among whom his favor rests. On the eve of his death, he said, Peace I, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. After his resurrection, he came to his disciples with these words, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. He mediates our growth in peace because he prays for us. He prays for us. He prays for our peace. Just look on in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives. Do you understand? Jesus always lives lives to make intercession for us. He is praying for us. 
Always. Always. He prays for our peace. He prays for our wholeness. He prays for our well-being. That's a good thing. The priest, the priest represented God to the people. The priest represented the people to God. And Jesus is praying for us. We have peace with God, as Romans 5 one says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who know Jesus have peace with God. You lack peace, go to Jesus. You know Jesus and you lack peace, go to Jesus. He is the giver of all peace. It's interesting, in Psalm 85, there is a unique, a unique verse in Psalm 85. And in verse 10, we read, we'll actually go to verse 8, Psalm 85, 8. I will hear what God the Lord will say. He will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. I love that. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. The glory may dwell in the land. And look at verse 10. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Loving kindness and truth have met together. And then righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Righteousness and peace have have kissed in Christ. They have come together beautifully in Christ. Jesus brings righteousness and peace together beautifully in his character. His significance is seen in his name, in his titles, and also in his identity, who he is. Look at verse 3. We read that he is without father and without mother. That's a little bit of an issue there. (laughs) Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So who are we talking about here? That's a question that has puzzled interpreters throughout the centuries and still confuses us today. Who was he? He suddenly appeared and then he suddenly disappeared. No genealogy. The scriptures don't tell of his parents, of his credentials, or his successor. It says he's without father or without mother. Now, let me give you a few ideas here. First of all, I don't think it means that he didn't have a father or mother. I think it's pointing to the fact that scripture doesn't mention his father and his mother. Seven, chapter 7, verse 6 it clearly implies that he had a genealogy. Look at, look at verse 6. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham. Um, he did have ancestors and descendants. It's just that they were not listed. He had no beginning and, or end. Scripture doesn't tell us when he was born or when he died. He was made like the Son of God. Now, we've got to see, look at this one closely. The likeness is not to Christ as a man. It didn't say made like the Son of Man. He was not in the likeness of Christ as a man, as incarnate Jesus, but he was like him as God. Because the Son of Man, in Jesus in incarnate, was born of Mary in Bethlehem, died on Calvary's cross, 
But in his divine nature, he was and remains eternal. Eternal. But these words have led many people to think that Melchizedek was an angel, maybe. The wildest view I heard was that some thought he was Shem. Uh, But some thought he was an angel. Some even thought he is a theophany, uh, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus himself. There are a few reasons, though, why I think that's not the case. Let me just give you three reasons. One, priesthood was was for men, not for angels. So he couldn't be an angel because he was a priest. Second, he was made like the Son of God. It didn't say he was the Son of God. And he resembled Christ. He was not Christ. Christ can't be a type of himself. He's either a type or he's the real thing. Here he is listed as like, so a type. And the last idea would be this. In Psalm 110, verse 4, it says that Messiah is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, clearly differentiating between Christ and Melchizedek as two distinct people. You've got to land here, though, OGK. Or O-G-R-K, only God really knows. It's a mystery. But personally, I believe that Melchizedek was a historical person who typified Christ. A historical person who typified Christ. That he was a king of an ancient city-state, most likely Jerusalem, who was also a priest of the, of the true God. Now, other places in Scripture, when, someone took, when a king tried to take the role of priest, they got in a lot of trouble. But here, this was a before even the priesthood of, of Levi and Aaron was, was instituted. Here you have this king priest who lived in a pagan land, who lived among pagan people, and was one of those rare people in his day that held to the true faith that was handed down by, through Noah. And his significance, evidenced by his name and his titles and his identity. We also want to look at Melchizedek's superiority. That he is also superior. He's significant and he's also superior. And we see that in the first three verses, but also in verses 4 through 10. That with regard to his position, he is better than Abraham. Better than Abraham, we see that in, the, in verses 4 through 7, and better than Levi in verses 8 through 10. Now, we've got to admit the Jewish writer to the Hebrews employed some very strange exegesis that doesn't fit with Western thinking, okay? It just doesn't seem to fit with our minds. But his readers would have clearly gotten the point. With this unusual man, Melchizedek, comes this unusual situation described in verses 4 to 10. Think about it. The Jews held Abraham to be the truly great pioneer, the father the father of their race. But he gave a tithe to Melchizedek and was blessed um, by Melchizedek. What, What does that mean? It means that he was acknowledging Melchizedek's superiority over himself and his descendants, including Levi and the Levitical priesthood. The whole point the writer of Hebrews is trying to make with this is this. Jesus is better. 
better than Abraham, better than Levi, better than the priesthood. Don't go back. There is something better, a better hope. Melchizedek's superiority is seen in these seemingly confusing topics of tithing, blessing, and then permanence. Are you with me still? Okay, tithing first of all. Tithing. The term, again, it was started here now in Genesis 14. The term was pointing to an ancient custom of heaping all the spoils of battle in a big honking pile. Okay? Big old pile of stuff. And then taking the top tenth and offering it to the gods. Okay? That was the idea. Now, if at the historic meeting in, in Genesis 14... Abraham voluntarily gave a tenth of all the spoils, all the goods that had been retrieved when he, when he conquered the kings, he gave those, those, the tenth of that to Melchizedek. Now, a tithe. What was significant about a tithe? A tithe was presented to God through his priestly representative. In this case, it was Melchizedek. Accepting tithes signified authority to do so. So Melchizedek had authority that Abraham was recognizing. Now, in the ancient world, paying tithes to someone meant recognition of the recipient's superiority and a sign of your subjection to them. So Abraham was putting himself under Melchizedek and recognizing his superiority to receive tithes, but also Abraham's subjection to Melchizedek. Are you still with me? You've got to give me more than that. You still with me? Okay, all right. Then we'll keep going. Um, uh, now, Melchizedek was paid tithes by Abraham, but also Levi. What was all that about? It says he was still in the loins of his father Abraham. The fact was that he was coming out of the posterity of Abraham. He was one of his. He was going to be one of his relatives. And therefore, he would also, in Abraham, because in the Hebrew mind, your, your, your descendants were so closely attached to who you were and your standing. And remember the priests. They had to uh, prove that they had come from the right tribe and the right family. Here, Melchizedek, he's got a priesthood that God had instituted apart from credentials, apart from genealogy. It was a different kind of priesthood. And it was better than Abraham, better than Levi, and it actually preceded that other priesthood. It was greater. Now, Abraham recognized Melchizedek as a deserving and faithful priest of God, and so he voluntarily gave to him. Now, I want to say something about tithing for a moment. Because tithing is rarely mentioned in churches and largely misunderstood. Most of the time we think, we've got to give 10%. And people think, do the math. Oh, it doesn't work, so I'll just, I don't know, we'll just give whatever we got left. Let's go to Malachi 3. Last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. Find Matthew and go backwards. Malachi he wasn't Italian, not Malachi. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Uh, Malachi. Let's go. Oh, I read the whole book of Malachi yesterday. Now I'm going to forget where it was. Um, chapter 3. Help me. Somebody help me. Malachi 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Big question here. Yet you are robbing me. Ooh, God is speaking here. And he says, you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing for you until it overflows. Wow. Well, now that, that's interesting. But let me say a couple things. Most of the time, in regards to tithing, we will say this. We're not under law. We're under grace. And I wholeheartedly agree. Absolutely. We are not under law. We are under grace. Under grace, we are free from the law. So what do you do about a thing like like tithing? Is that something we ought to do? The idea... Uh, that the New Testament gives is there is no specified amount that we are to give. It doesn't say give 10%. Now, many of us start with that and we, we give 10%. But the, the Bible in the New Testament does not say a, a specific amount. You know, there's 50% tithers. You know that? Now, there's reverse tithers. I heard of somebody that gives 90%. But the, the New Testament does not give a specified exact amount. But it does say this, God loves a cheerful giver. Let everyone do just as they have purposed in their heart. It is to be out of love. God first loved us, therefore we love him. And out of our love for him, out of our gratitude for him, we are to freely give, voluntarily give. That's why Abraham's tithing was a type to us of our tithing, because not because of the tenth, but because he voluntarily gave to Melchizedek. You see that? He voluntarily gave to Melchizedek, just as we are to voluntarily give back to God what is already his. And I will remind us all of this idea. Yes, we are not under law, but under grace. And the standard is always higher under grace. The standard is always higher under grace. For everything. Now remember too this. Remember this. When you give, when we give, we're not giving to the church. We're giving to God. Who, and, and the church happens to be stewards of the gifts that are given by the people. But whatever you choose to give, let it be given freely out of a giving heart, not grudgingly. And let it be out of your choicest possessions as the, the top portion the first and the best. However God blesses you. Speaking of blessing, let's talk about that. Blessing. There was the tithing, now the blessing. And the blessing signifies superiority as well. It's more than just saying something nice to someone or praising them. God bless you. It's, different. it's more than that. A biblical blessing was an official pronouncement. 
It came from one who was properly authorized to do so, and it actually gave something to the recipient. There was something, a benefit given. The blessing carried with it not only a verbal expression of goodwill, but goodwill achieving actual results. Why? Because God was behind the blessing. God was behind the blessing. God, through the blessing and through the blesser, was the one who was pronouncing, in a sense, what he would do for the person being blessed. So the person blessing is announcing to the person being blessed what God will do or thinks of them. God spoke through the giver of the blessing. Now, when we understand the biblical blessing in this way, there is no doubt who is the greater amongst Melchizedek or, or Abraham. Melchizedek had to be superior to Abraham to be able to give a blessing from God to him. When he blessed Abraham, he was not just congratulating him on the victory. He was expressing God's approval of him. He was God's messenger to Abraham. So at that very moment, right then, Abraham stood between, excuse me, uh, Melchizedek stood between God and Abraham. Melchizedek stood between God and Abraham. Melchizedek was the greater one. And all this in spite of the fact that Abraham was the patriarch of the Hebrew people and that he was the recipient of the promises from God. So the greatness of Melchizedek, uh, recognized by Abraham, whose acceptance of a priestly blessing testified to Melchizedek's superiority. Now I want to talk something about permanence. Permanence. Levitical priests priests were constantly um, dying and being replaced. They could only... They could only serve for 25 years anyway. So if they got to the limit, they they would be replaced or they would die before. But Melchizedek is a priest forever. His priesthood is not characterized by a whole succession of, of, of people who followed him. But at the time of the writing of Hebrews, the Levitical system was still in place. It was before the fall of Jerusalem in, in A.D. 70. Following that date, the temple was destroyed. There was no more need for the tithes of the people to carry on uh, the priesthood. Now, with Melchizedek, the scriptures tell of no initial successors to him. The only biblical statements are that he is still alive, that he still lives. And this does not mean that he never died, but that the silence of scripture on this point gives the basis for the typology of Jesus being the antitype of Melchizedek. The fact that centuries later, God spoke of the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110 implies that it was not some, some curiosity from the past, but it was a, a real uh, living priesthood still open, still waiting. Um, we know of only two priests in the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek and Jesus. Jesus succeeded Melchizedek. The priesthood of Melchizedek lasts forever, not in himself, but in the Lord of Melchizedek, Jesus, Jesus Christ. So we need to conclude a couple things about Melchizedek. We must conclude that his priesthood, though not only briefly mentioned in Scripture, is superior in every way to Abraham's and to the Levitical priesthood. And he was an illustration of the ultimate king-priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus supersedes Melchizedek. Supersedes him by far. He is the truly, the only true 
holy and righteous one, Jesus. He satisfies the righteousness of God as our substitute and provides peace with God for all believers. I brought a picture with me today that I hang in my, that's hanging in my office, that usually hangs in my office, a picture of my family. Beautiful picture. It's a portrait. It's a photograph of, of all the Sharas. Now, it's just a picture. It's not the reality. Now, my family's sitting over here. My family, uh, in person, is way better than a photograph. I remember being on a missions trip once in India and missing, I was on an 18-day missions trip, and I remember missing Angela and the kids so much that I was, like, crying at night. And, and call me a baby, that's all right. Uh, uh, and the photograph was all I had. So that was it. But when I got home, oh, to hug real people, that was way better. Well, here's the thing. As the, the in-person supersedes a photo, and as the anti-type of the type, Christ supersedes Melchizedek just like in-person supersedes a photo. Jesus, Jesus is, is the real thing here. Melchizedek was called the king of righteousness. He was called the king of peace. But he could never make people righteous, and he could never give them peace. See, he was only a type. But Jesus, the true eternal Melchizedekian priest king, gives righteousness and gives peace. It's from him. He's the messianic king whose kingdom will manifest the true righteousness of God and peace among his people. Now, there were implications for the early church that are true for us as well. I just want to give you two, just two. The first thing is this. Christ is greater than all, and he is in control. Jesus has secured our righteousness. He secured peace, and now he continually prays for the working out of both things in our lives. That means something very significant. It means something very significant to us. It means that we will survive the changing tides of life. We will survive the changing tides of life. Those Hebrew Christians that were being written to, they were tempted to go back. They were tempted to mistake hardship with God's inability to help or to save. To think that the, for, the former program was greater than their newfound faith in Christ. But the message was simple and profound that our future is secure in Christ. But don't trust in anyone or anything else. We are in his hands. He is able. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. Jesus, our sufficiency. Like like Melchizedek did for Abraham, Jesus comes out to meet us, initiating blessing. And he goes to God for us, interceding for us. So Jesus is greater. And he's in control. The second thing is this. Therefore, because of that, Jesus is worthy of all our attention. Jesus is worthy of all our attention. Not all those other little piddly things we put our attention on. That we are so tempted to go towards. See, our adoration, our focus, our fixation ought to be on Jesus. And we know how much we mess that one up. (laughs) And we're thinking about all sorts of things. But how often do we think about Jesus? Think about this. What's more important to you or, or as important to you as your relationship with Jesus? Is there anything? Who or what do you go to to get what you need? 
to escape reality or to medicate against your pain. It could be food, it could be money, it could be relationships, it could be a lot of things. Seriously, for some people it's food and it leads to gluttony. For others it's money and it leads to greed. For others it's relationships and it leads to an unhealthy dependence. See, we need all those things and other things God has provided, but not as ends in and of themselves, but as a means to an end of glorifying God. None of them can save us. None of them can fulfill us. They are God's tools he uses in our lives to make us holy, not happy. And we need to get fixated on Jesus. I don't have time, but write, jot, jot down 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, and 2, chapter 2, 21 through 25. Read those later about a focus on that. But we need to get fixated on Jesus. See, a good mystery can be a, diver- a diversion from reality, can't it? You get lost in it, and it feels like you're living in that world, and then you realize, I'm just reading a book. I'm just watching a movie. The tendency is to become so fascinated with the mystery that we lose sight of the reality or that we hide from the practical issues of reality in our life. Don't let mystery keep you from reality. Don't get so wrapped up in people like Melchizedek or other things. God wants us to be fixated on Jesus, his clearly revealed truth. Jesus is not a mystery. In him, all the mysteries long hidden are revealed. Melchizedek points to Jesus, whose name is above every name, whose title is the eternal Son of God, whose purpose is to save sinners. And Melchizedek's dual role of priest and king foreshadows beautifully Christ's saviorhood as perfect priest and his lordship as perfect king. Melchizedek is not the principal character here. Jesus is. And he bows before Jesus' throne. He serves the purpose of God for his life just to point to Jesus. It's like John the Baptist who said of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He also said of Jesus, He must increase and I must decrease. Who was he? Who was John the Baptist? Just a voice. Just a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He pointed others to Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. Let's pray. Lord God, with this huge topic of a mysterious character, it's easy to get bogged down. But Lord, help us just to focus on you. Lord, help us to get fixated on you. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for so many things that point us to him again and again and again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand with me as we are dismissed. I just want to remind you of a couple things. One, I'll be up here with some others to pray with you for anyone who needs prayer or anything. Uh, Bookmarks are in your bulletins of things to read this week. And... um, Remember the musical tonight at 6 p.m. So uh, as we're dismissed today, I will say this. uh, Don't be strangers. Stand and greet one another. And go in peace and serve the Lord.